Live now from the Infant of Prague Church here on Cleveland Drive, just off of the thruway in Chictawaga, where a much-anticipated news conference is to begin momentarily, featuring the Bishop of the Diocese of Buffalo, Richard Malone. You heard from him, of course, uh, on Friday, live on WBEN and throughout the weekend in other media interviews as well. Uh, and the Bishop will be taking questions momentarily. Good afternoon. Kathy My name Spangler is Kathy Spangler. I'm the Director of Communications for the Diocese of Buffalo. Thank you for joining us uh, for this press conference. I'd first like to apologize uh, for our delay in starting with you, and so we'll get right to it. I'd like to extend my thanks to Father Ray for letting us hold these meetings here at Infant of Prague. He and his staff were very helpful in all the preparations. Thank you for your hospitality. We will begin with opening remarks from Bishop Malone, followed by some important information that we'd like to share with you. Bishop is joined today by several key members of the diocese staff, including Bishop Edward Gross, Father Peter Corrales, Father James Crolio, who will be coming over, Monsignor Sal, Sister Regina, Stephen Halter, Jacqueline Joy, Don Blowy, and diocesan attorneys Terry Connor and Lawler Quinlan. Following the presentations, we will move to questions and answers. If you have a question, I'll ask you to meet me directly behind this row of chairs. Please form a line there, and I'll ask you to limit your question to one per news organization at a time. If time allows for more, we'll be happy to oblige. Without further delay, please welcome Bishop Malone. Bishop Thank, you. Malone. Thank you, Kathy. And my, my apology, too, for our tardiness. As you can imagine, uh, there were lots of priests with lots of questions and all, so we, we needed to honor that. So I'm, I'm sorry we're late for you. Uh, as the people who work closely with me know, I, I really like promptness, so it's not good. I'd like us, if you wouldn't mind, just to begin with a moment of calling upon God for healing for victims of abuse. This is a prayer that many of us pray every single day, and many of our parishes as well, and I pray it with a sincere love and heart. God of endless love, ever caring, ever strong, always present, always just. You gave your only Son to save us by his blood on the cross. Gentle Jesus, shepherd of peace, join to your own suffering the pain of all who have been hurt in body, mind, and spirit by those who betrayed the trust placed in them. Hear the cries of our brothers and sisters who have been gravely harmed and the cries of those who love them. Soothe their restless hearts with hope Steady their shaken spirits with faith. Grant them justice for their cause, enlightened by your truth. Holy Spirit, comforter of hearts, heal your people's wounds and transform brokenness into wholeness. Grant us the courage and wisdom, humility and grace to act with justice. Breathe wisdom into our prayers and labors. Grant that all harmed by abuse may find peace injustice. We ask this, O Lord, in your holy name. Amen. Well, good afternoon again, and I thank you all for coming today. Before we get into the bulk of information that we want to share with you, and there's some significant information coming, I want to share a few personal thoughts. Just now, and the reason I'm late, at the meeting with priests and transitional deacons, I express my concern to them about how difficult it has been for them 
to carry out their priestly and pastoral ministry in the current atmosphere of crisis. Along with confusion and silence and misinformation, I know they have expressed deep compassion and attention to the people entrusted to their care. I assured them that together we, priests, bishops, deacons, religious and faithful laypeople, the church we all love, together will be purified, renewed and made stronger. I shared with them and they agree that too much is at stake. The faith and commitment of our people, the healing of victims, even our very mission in the world. Today, before we have some time for Q&A, I would ask your attentive listening to what will be presented by some members of my staff who are key in the whole challenge of responding to this crisis. Your understanding of the facts and the process is essential. And I'm thankful to you for the ways you really do try to be attentive to the facts. Today, I and others will be very specific and use precise words. It is not about semantics. We all know words can be misinterpreted or misunderstood, and that does not lead to fuller understanding and the ability to move forward. First and foremost, we are about healing. In March, when the Independent Reconciliation and Compensation Program was announced, we asked for victims to come forward. They have, and the numbers were overwhelming. I think the image, the word tsunami is not inappropriate. And I say again now, this is not in my prepared notes, but I say again now, if still there are victims out there who have not come forward to us, I ask you please to, to do that so that we can respond. Addressing these cases, though, has taken more time than expected, and so we've instituted additional staff and procedures to work through all the cases to bring healing to our victims. Second, we must be about truth. Finding the truth can be difficult in these cases. This, too, unfortunately takes time and cooperation. There are priests who have been placed on administrative leave and have been so for months. I want to resolve these cases as soon as possible. We have additional investigators now who are working on their cases. As much as we all want resolution, our investigations must be thorough, and while wanting to speed up the process, we cannot sacrifice the truth for speed. Being placed on administrative leave does not indicate guilt. We know some of our priests, especially in decades-old cases, are guilty and have caused great pain and suffering to their victims and victims' families. The truth, I believe, will bring some healing. Today, the diocese is publishing an additional list of priests who have against them substantiated allegations of sexual abuse of a minor. This list is divided in several categories. It's vitally important to understand those categories. 
Please know that we have done much to protect the victims and the accused. You know well the calls for my resignation. I have stated that I do not have plans to do that. I know that there may not be a high level of trust right now, but I do believe that working with others who continue to believe in me, we can steer through this storm into a calm sea. A resignation, of course, is not automatic. It requires the permission of the Holy Father. In addition, the Diocese of Buffalo deserves to regain stability. A resignation does not bring stability. In fact, it can exacerbate instability. With the work of the Independent Reconciliation Compensation Program, the new Office of Professional Responsibility, the new task force to create an effective protocol for handling claims of clerical abuse of adults, and our new Director of the Office of Communications, together, I believe, and this is my commitment, my prayer, my hope, I believe we will build the stability needed to restore trust, strengthen faith and hope among all of God's people. I thank Kathy Spangler, our new Director of the Office of Communications, who will guide us through the rest of our meeting. A few more things for you, and then some opportunity for your questions and my response. Afternoon. As the bishop mentioned that we were going to release uh, new names today, which we will. I'd like to preface that, however, by speaking just a bit about the process of dealing with priest files. As the chancellor of the diocese, I'm currently in charge of the files. Uh, prior to that, uh, which would be prior to this past April, I did a lot of work in the archives and assisted with Bishop Gross sometimes doing some research and I discovered back in uh, 2016 that there seemed to be files in many different places and I asked Bishop Malone if I could do an inventory because that didn't seem like the best way to organize the files. Uh, he immediately said yes and uh, I did the inventory and uh, some priests had pieces of their file in as many as four or five different places. So I did a summary of what I found in the inventory and that actually uh, went public. It was one of those documents that was out there. And uh, what wasn't known about that document, I believe it was dated May 1st, uh, 2017. I had categorized priests according to where their files were. I had not yet read the files. You know, I might have glanced at them, but basically it was according to where they were. From that date, May 1st, 2017, uh, until 2018, uh, probably again this spring, I was reading all those files, putting them on a database, uh, and finding out how many were misplaced. Uh, all the files were reorganized. They were all brought together into one place. So if you need a deceased priest file, it's in the main archives. If you need a living priest file, it's in the clergy file room. And every piece of information was in, is in that file. Uh, the numbers that were out in the press uh, earlier uh, when that uh, May 1st, 
2015 or 2017 the document was released uh, are no longer accurate. Uh, things are now uh, much better organized and uh, the continuing updating of the database, which given the, the number of recent cases is very difficult to keep up with. Uh, but I think we're pretty well organized as of this moment. Uh, today we're releasing an additional list of names, diocesan priests, we will give you 20 names, and these are all priests with substantiated claims of abuse of a minor. We are also releasing 16 names of religious order priests, again with substantiated claims of abuse of a minor. So that's 36 names that will be released, and on your way out of this press conference, uh, we will give you that. Uh, just in summary, uh, at the bottom of, of the list, it explains uh, what our total numbers are on the current database and uh, well for example the uh, total number on the database of priests with substantiated allegations would be and this is both diocesan and religious order uh, would be 176. Uh, 66 of those have uh, are most for the most part deceased with a single allegation and keeping to our our basic uh, protocol, we are not releasing any deceased priest names with a single allegation. Uh, as of today, 78 of those names are publicized either in March or, or today. Uh, 20 priests are being investigated currently. And then there are another 12 uh, who are kind of in the other category. Uh, the, either the perpetrator uh, could not be identified, they were cleared of wrongdoing, and in the case of religious order priests who could be missioned any place in the country, there were several cases where, I don't have the number right in front of me, there's about six or more cases uh, where there was abuse, substantiated abuse, but it did not occur in this diocese, and so we did not release those names. Uh, you will also receive a graph that shows of, of the uh, 70 some odd that we are releasing or have released, and it, it, it's based on both March and, and today. A graph showing when those particular perpetrators actually began the abuse, and uh, this is what it will look like. It, you may have it. Um, it shows you that most of the abuse is not occurring in the last 20 years, but most of the abuse has occurred between 1960 and 1970. In fact, there's no priest ordained in the last 20 years who has had an allegation of sexual abuse of a minor. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Regina. Uh, next, I would like to invite Lawler Quinlan, who will provide some historical context and explain uh, some of our processes. Lawler. Good afternoon, everyone. Before I begin to talk about the uh, historical context, I'd like to just share with you a comment that was made in one of our, oh, sorry, in one of our meetings uh, early on in this process. And that is that every mass, Catholics do what's called a profession of faith. Sometimes we use the Apostles' Creed. Most times we use the Nicene Creed. It's a creed that came out of two councils in the fourth century. 
And at that time, the church leaders agreed upon a term to describe the Holy Spirit. And we say that the Holy Spirit is the Lord and the giver of life. What this is, this sex abuse of a child, is the exact opposite of that. It is the drainer of life. It is a life-draining, soul-sucking, strength-sapping, awful, terrible, and if I had more adjectives, I'd say them thing. It is that most of all, of course, for the victims. Uh, they, and I've spoken with dozens of them the past few years, and I've seen how their lives have been destroyed uh, by um, something that happened very early on. It, when when uh, a life like that gets changed in such a terrible way, um, it's sometimes never the same. Uh, and, and it's always amazing to me how that abuse manifests itself in a person. Um, sometimes you see two brothers who are raised by the same parents uh, have all other things in common and were abused by the same priest. And one will go on with life and you won't, from the outside, be able to tell that something was wrong. And the other will, his life's path will veer off uh, and turn to substance abuse, uh, uh, violence, um, go through several wives. Uh, it's an awful, awful thing. And it's awful and life-draining for his family as well, especially the parents who feel bad about not having believed that child earlier on. It is also life-draining for the church, uh, the church as a whole, and each of the parishes, uh, and the people who practice in them. People who are married by these priests or baptized by these priests, and they feel betrayed uh, by the horrible crimes committed by um, a small percentage of the priests. And it's also life-draining for the good priests, the vast majority of priests out there who are um, doing, giving their lives to God uh, and to serve others. And they have to face this sort of uh, awful suspicion of everyone looking at them thinking, is he one of the bad guys? Um, it's, it's a very difficult thing. And all of this is made worse here in Buffalo this year uh, because the life-draining sex abuse crisis has been in the news, and that is certainly true. It's been all over the news. But people in this diocese, both because of the news in general and because of the recent 60 Minutes program, are under the impression that there is rampant child sex abuse going on right now in the diocese, and that is absolutely not true, and I have the numbers to demonstrate that. But before I get to the numbers, let me back up and give that historical perspective that Kathy was talking about. There is a date by which all of this must be examined, and that date is 2002 when the charter came out. It's either before then or after then because they're two very different stories, and I think people need to know that. Everybody remembers the crisis in Boston in 2002 and the stories that came out of it. The stories, first of all, of the horrible abuse itself. It is, as I said before, a life-draining, awful thing, and that was shocking enough. But the second thing that was shocking was the manner in which church leaders responded to it, when they learned about it. A lot of times it was hidden from the church, both by the, the priest who would intimidate the young person uh, and, and um, convince him or her not to talk, or by when the kid finally did talk to a teacher or a parent or something and they'd not believe him or tell him, how dare you say that about a priest or something terrible. But when it did get to the attention of the church, unfortunately, it wasn't always handled correctly. What had happened is sometimes people at that time, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, even 80s, there was a belief 
of course, the church believes in redemption and forgiveness, but there's also belief in the science, uh, the psychiatry and psychology, that a person can go and talk to a counselor and that the person would change. The priest would be different and it could be placed someplace else. And that happened in Boston. And we all know what the terrible result was. Uh, it, the, some of these priests continued to abuse, and it was, it was, we know the awful results. Did the church here in Buffalo make the same sort of bad decisions like that before 2002? Yes, it did. Sometimes it was handled correctly. Sometimes the, the right thing was done and the abuser was removed from ministry. But sometimes the abuse uh, continued on and what you, what you see in the news happened. Uh, and we need to tell the stories of that abuse. We really do. Too many lives have been ruined. That chapter of the church's history needs to be exposed. Those stories need to be told, for sure. But if you hear nothing else I say today, hear this. When the story of this abuse crisis is told, whether it's by the media or by a government official someday or by historians years from now looking back, if the story ends in 2002 and only covers the abuse, then it isn't being fair to the church and it isn't telling the whole story. When the story is told, we must find the, what happened afterwards. We need to cover the sea change in the way these man, things were handled that happened in 2002 very clearly and cover the positive story the, of what the church has been doing to bring the number of these occurrences, and this is true, way, way, way down. From the 50s, 60s, and 70s to the present, there is a dramatic change effective in 2002. Um, in 2002, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops established the Charter for the Protection of Young People, uh, Children and Young People. You'll often hear about that referred to as the Charter. That's what they're talking about. It's more than just a bunch of principles and policies. It required every diocese to establish what's called the Diocesan Review Board. The notion was we don't want the, the decisions about what to do with these priests being made by a bishop and someone else in a, in, in a room in the chancery. We want the lay people to be involved in these decisions, and they have been since 2002. Each diocese was required to uh, assemble a review board that would be composed of people with good judgment and people with a, ver a variety of experiences. So you have, and here in Buffalo we've had, retired judges, retired prosecutors, uh, we've had medical professionals, people skilled in the treatment and uh, understanding of child sexual abuse. And they sit down, and every single complaint that comes in needs to be presented to that group, a, a complaint of child sexual abuse. So uh, Jackie Joy here is our victim assistance coordinator. And when a complaint comes in, what is supposed to happen is if you get it as a parish priest or a parent or a school person, you funnel it to Jackie. And Jackie does an intake form where she gets all the vital information about the priest, about the complainant, about when it happened, where it happened, what happened. And that information is then uh, presented. With, there's a determination that's made, a very low standard, whether it's manifestly false and frivolous or whether there's a dispute here. So, for example, uh, sometimes the, the priest will be confronted with that and admit it in the first instance, and then uh, the, the manner is taken care of. 
Other times it is determined you have a, a story that just can't possibly be true, like this priest wasn't even a priest yet for another 10 years. Uh, and so that's, that low standard would be considered manifestly false. But the vast, vast majority of cases meet that low standard, and they get sent to the review board. Um, now, presently, they are investigated by someone. So we have, we've always investigated them, but now we have um, Steve Halter, the former FBI agent, will be uh, investigating, investigating them. We've previously had um, uh, a former ADA uh, assistant district attorney who handled sex crime, uh, child sex crime cases, investigate them. And that person will gather information uh, from both the priest and from the uh, complainant and present it uh, to the review board for their consideration. And I mentioned the, the, the um, people on that review board and the variety of uh, backgrounds that they have and the experiences that they have. And the collective wisdom of that board is an impressive thing to see. And they take the uh, cases very seriously. And they will uh, ask the investigator sometimes to go out and speak to this person or that person or get this uh, um, piece of evidence to, to evaluate it. And then the review board makes a recommendation to the bishop, which is invariably accepted, uh, as to whether the claim has been substantiated or not substantiated. If there's even a single claim of child abuse that is substantiated, that priest is removed from ministry, okay? We're going to come back later to the 60 minutes, but that priest is removed uh, from ministry and a process has started to have him uh, removed from the clerical state, which is a different thing. Um, so uh, the charter has requirements. Um, oh, the charter also has requirements for everybody working in the diocese. So it, it is a not only responding to claims, it's also preventing abuse. And we have systems in place uh, where everybody, I was a catechist at my kids' uh, church and, and to teach them religion. I had to go through the virtus training. Virtus is just the Latin for virtue. And it, and it prepares people, tells them all about clerical sexual abuse and sexual abuse of all kinds. And it and tells people to, um, here's what you should be looking for. Here's what you should and shouldn't be doing with children. Uh, if you see something, say something. And it's a sort of uh, encouraging of vigilance uh, for, to protect kids going forward. And that's a huge component of what happened in 2002. All of what I'm talking about is post-2002, that big sea change of cases that I've been talking about. And the good news is, if there is any good news about this life-draining process, is that these practical changes have had a dramatic effect on the number of instances of childhood sexual abuse both here in our diocese and all across the country. Um, and, and the number of occurrences since 2000 are very, very, very few. Uh, and we'll get to exactly how many there are later. So why is the diocese all over the news this year? Uh, why is this um, constantly in the paper? There are a few answers to that question. First, you need to know about the Independent Reconciliation and Compensation Program. Uh, Last year, in 2017, a few downstate dioceses uh, came up with the notion that we ought to uh, have a compensation program for victims, um, similar to the ones you see after disasters like the 9-11 uh, or the oil spill in the Gulf Coast. And these, uh, the notion is the person can come in either with an attorney or on his or her own, file a piece of paper, excuse me, oh, sorry, file a piece of paper and uh, 
and have the, their claim evaluated by an independent um, uh, person or persons and make a decision about the claim and award them compensation. And in this case, uh, these dioceses downstate were doing it. And we looked at that and we saw that it was pretty successful. Um, you know, the first we were a little skeptical that people wouldn't want to do it, that they say, oh, you know, we want to go in court and sue people and if this statute that, uh, passes, that's what we want to do. But instead, what I've heard, we've heard from both uh, victims and from their attorneys, uh, is that they like this process, the one that was down in, in, going on downstate, because it's quicker, uh, it's easier, it's less confrontational. So the bishop instituted one here. And when he did that, and we had a big press conference, he made the announcement, as he had made many times before, if you know somebody who's been abused or if you yourself have been abused, come forward. Tell us about it. Please, if you know about claims, come forward and, and respond. And uh, that's exactly what happened here. Um, we had an idea. We anticipated that we'd probably receive an increase in the number of claims that would come in. Uh, but the bishop had no idea that the response would be so overwhelming. Um, to put it in perspective, let me give you an idea of our past experience. Uh, every year, the diocese has to do an annual audit. Uh, and it's one that you uh, keep a record of the claims that have come in that year. It starts on July 1st and ends June 30th. And you're supposed to report all of the new claims that came in that year. By new claim, I mean new to, uh, new to the Diocese of Buffalo, new information that we are hearing for the first time. It doesn't mean that it just happened, okay? So many of these new claims are about things that happened a long time ago, but the person's coming forward for the first time. And those need to be included in an audit. So last year, or the year before, the 2016-2017, we reported uh, seven new claims, okay? That was typical. The year before that, it was, I think, four. Um, this year, the Diocese of Buffalo, from the June 1st, uh, 20, or June, July 1st, 2017, to June 30th, 2018, received 191 new claims. That includes the claims that we received through the uh, Jackie and also the claims that came in through the IRCP. Now, of course, many of the IRCP claims we already knew about, so they wouldn't be considered in that number. But this is, we try to make an accurate record of the new claims that came in this year, or new reports of child sexual abuse, and it was 191. And they, uh, and, and frankly, it was, um, it overwhelmed our systems. Uh, you've heard talk about the phones not being sufficient. You've heard talk about claims that should be handled by someone like Jackie, who is a licensed clinical social worker. She is the person who should be interacting with a victim, not someone else at the chancery. And yet, there were so many calls coming in that they often were, and the people were waiting to hear back. And Jackie has uh, another job that she does and, and is used to having a very few number of claims coming in a year. Instead of getting 11 claims in a year, you're getting 190 claims in a few months. It overwhelms our process. And we had receptionists, secretaries, uh, responding, making the initial contact, not doing what Jackie does, but making the initial contact. And, you know, that shouldn't have been the way it happened. And what we did, responded as quickly as we could. We brought back, uh, or the, the bishop brought back uh, the, Jackie's predecessor, who was also a licensed clinical social worker, uh, who, out of retirement, and she helped uh, respond to these claims. But let me go back to that number of 191, because this is very important. Remember, this is our most recent year audit, okay? We'll do another one next year and another one next year. But this is our most recent data set. 
It has the 190 claims that are coming, 191 claims that are coming in for the first time this year. And it's the freshest batch of data that we have. And of those claims, how many of the people were claiming that their abuse had occurred since 2000? Zero. Not a single claim of a, a kid who said, I was abused in 2002 or 2003 or 2017. None. The, and there, there weren't that many in the 90s uh, uh, or the 80s. The vast majority of these claims, and we have the charts and you have them, it's consistent with the national data. Now, we have had claims since 2000. I don't want anyone to misunderstand that. And previously, uh, and some public, we had a, a priest who possessed child pornography in 2004. He's on the list. Uh, we had two other priests. Okay, so there are a few instances, but it's extremely rare and way less common now because of what the church did in 2002. Uh, there was a, a dramatic reduction, uh, and I think this data shows that the 2002 charter is working. The review board is working. The vigilance is also working. And you know what else is working? It's the awareness of the people. Um, one of the saddest things you hear when uh, you speak with some of these victims is that when they finally decided to say something to a mom or a grandma or um, a teacher or a nun, that the person yelled at them. How dare you say that about a priest? Or slapped the kid, or washed his mouth out with soap. It's almost like a second victimization. I asked the people who are watching this on, on our live feed, of the, six, of the 600 some thousand people in the Diocese of Buffalo, all you mothers and grandmothers out there, if your kid came home today, your loved one, and said to you that, mommy, grandma, today when I was with a priest, he took his pants off in front of me. Is there a single person in the entire state that wouldn't believe that kid or wouldn't respond by calling the police, calling the diocese and taking action? This vigilance has resulted in a dramatic reduction. We, the, of the 191 claims, none, none, not one since 2000. So. The notion, to the extent you see it in the news all the time, that there's ongoing abuse or that the priests that are with your kids are abusing them is not true. And I hope that's the, the, that people take uh, that message away from uh, this um, conference. The second thing is, the reason why people are worried is this 60 Minutes uh, conference or 60 Minutes interview. Um, there was this suggestion, and you saw the interview back and forth with Father Ziliox and the, and the uh, questioner. And, uh, the, you know, how many, uh, he was talking about priests being removed from the priesthood, okay, from the priesthood. And what Father Bob, I don't dispute, he was technically correct. What he said is there were eight or nine priests that he, and he would argue, I would argue actually a little bit higher than that, but he would argue should be removed from the priesthood, that is, permanently removed from the clerical state. That, and so when he asked that, uh, well, I think there should be eight or nine. And the questioner said, or Whitaker said, um, and how many of them are still uh, in, in, uh, in the priesthood today? And he said, all of them. And dropped this big pumpkin in the middle of the interview. And everybody in America was like, oh my gosh, what's going on in Buffalo? What are these people thinking? They got eight or nine pedophiles interacting with kids in church and at schools? That is totally not true. What, technically, what he was saying is they haven't been removed from the clerical state. 
But they have been removed from ministry. He has since confirmed that. They are not in ministry. They're not at your school. They're not at the church. They're, if they go to the grocery store, they can't wear the Roman collar. They are perhaps sitting at home in uh, khakis and a red sweater. Okay? And so what Father Bob, when he, Father Bob Ziliox, when he made that statement, okay, what does it mean to be removed from the clerical state? Well, you and Father Sal can talk about this later. You have to go through these canonical processes where you make this big, thick packet called a votum and you send it over to Rome. They usually send it back, and then you have to do a canon law trial. And, and we did that for uh, Father Franzek, for example. But you know what? Father, Fa Father Franzek still has not been removed from the clerical state. Despite all that work, we still got to finish the trial, and, and, and uh, then it will be the case. So the notion that the person needs to be removed from the clerical state will have zero impact on the people's lives around that person. The priest, the day before he's removed from the clerical state, and the day after he's removed from the clerical state, his life, so far as everyone else can observe, is identically the same. He is not a priest. He, he is a, I shouldn't say, he is a priest, but he's not what you and I would call a priest. He's not saying mass. He's not seeing kids. He's not wearing the Roman collar. No one's getting confused by him wearing clerical garb. Those eight or nine people are all not acting as priests. Okay, the list of abusers. I'll, I'll turn to that. Um, and this is the second part of what I want to talk about, and that's what uh, Sister presented. Um, let me first say that the list, creating a list of priests who um, have substantiated claims of abuse against them is not something the bishop was required to do. No bishop in the history of Buffalo had ever done that. Many dioceses across the country, we were one of the uh, early ones. They're now starting to follow, it's becoming the trend to create these lists and to advise people. Uh, and the bishop decided to create a list of abusers. The idea behind it is that it does two things. It allows for some transparency for people to see what has happened. And it also, um, when a victim sees the name of his or her uh, abuser on the list, it, it's the sense that you're giving that person a sense of validation. Okay, and so that was the goal of what was to be done. So Sister Regina and I and a, and a few of, uh, group of others uh, set out to achieve what the bishop wanted. And we knew that uh, the more names provided, the more the victim uh, survivors would be satisfied. Um, but we also did not want to make the mistake of including a priest's name incorrectly. Once a priest's name is included on the list of uh, what people would say, a list of child abusers, you cannot unring that bell. So it needs to be done very carefully. The other thing we wanted to avoid in making the list is to, um, we didn't want to avoid we wanted to avoid saying that, that this person, this victim was believable or credible and that others were not. Our thought is if you make a list of credibly accused priests that doesn't include a particular priest on it and you're the victim and you look up for your abuser, then you're basically saying, okay, they don't believe me. Uh, they're, they're discounting my claim. And we did not want to do that. So we did create, and it's been criticized, the carefully crafted criteria. The objective was um, that we wanted to have criteria that couldn't be questioned by anyone. They were objective uh, and, and um, very objective criteria. So for example, we started off with the priests who would be easy. The priests who were removed from ministry or had been forced into retirement or retired after allegations of abuse had made, been made against them. 
That was easy. Then what do you do? We had two other issues we had to address. The first is, what do you do with religious order priests? Um, most Catholics know that not every priest is a diocesan priest. You have your Franciscans, Jesuits, Vincentians, Passionists. Believe it or not, I was surprised to learn that there's like over 100 uh, some uh, orders, Bishop Grosch would tell me, yeah, oh, they're, they're, that, that uh, have served in the diocese of various times. And so we knew of some abuse by those uh, order priests. So can you put them on the list? Well, the bishop doesn't have, he has authority to allow these people to uh, minister in the diocese, but he doesn't have the authority to take the discipline on them if something uh, is, uh, needs to be addressed in that way. Um, and he doesn't have control over them. They could be in this diocese for five years and then go to China for five years and then go to, and I'm not be, being facetious, they will go around the world uh, to different areas. So we may not know where this priest is. So what do you do with the order priests? Well, when we receive a complaint, when the diocese receives a complaint of, uh, against an order priest and it gets reported, um, Bishop Grosch, will contact the provincial, that's the boss of, that, uh, of this province of a particular order, and say, hey, Father so-and-so, we have a complaint against them. We may fax the uh, thing over or email it or whatever. And we get the information to the order for a good reason, because that order knows where that priest is. That order can call up that priest and say, get down here, like Bishop Grosch can do for a diocesan priest, and confront him and talk to him about it. That order can also respond to the victim better. They have people like Jackie Joy, and they have victim assistance coordinators of their own in many cases. And so we turn it over to uh, the, the uh, order priest. So um, we decided back then, or the bishop decided after we talked with that issue with him, he said, we're not going to include order priests because the orders, that's theirs. I don't have an ability to discipline them. I can't, we can't investigate it. They're, the, the priest may be no, no, out of the diocese, nowhere near here. And so you can't responsibly put the name of that priest on a list having done no investigation whatsoever. And so the determination was the order priests weren't going to go on the list. Now, were we trying, was the bishop trying to hide the fact that there were, uh, was abuse by order priests? Absolutely not. That was already in the news. Immediately when the list came out, people said, hey, wait a second, you don't have the order priests there. Yes, we, and if you read who's on the list, it clearly says that, we're not, that the order, you can see that the order priest would not be on it. Uh, so, um, but everyone was upset with that, and so we're trying to change that a little bit in our new list. But let me go back to the, the first one. So, um, uh, what do you do with deceased priests, okay? Many dioceses don't even um, publish a list of deceased priests. And the reason... Uh, is because when a priest is dead, maybe dead 60 years, uh, but oftentimes 10, 5, 20 uh, years before the first allegation comes out, that priest doesn't have a chance to defend himself. You can't say, I wasn't there, or I was here, or this didn't happen, or ask Sister Jones, or whatever. You, you can't defend yourself uh, against a claim if you're deceased. There is no prosecutor in the world who would prosecute a deceased person. Not the assistant district attorney, not the U.S. attorney, not the crown of England. Nobody would prosecute a dead person because they can't respond to the charges. But on the other hand, we have situations where we know, or where the sister and I could see from the files, that a particular deceased priest had a number of complaints against him. And so 
it seems like that the number of complaints, shouldn't you, if you have a person who has five claims against them, doesn't that kind of tell you that it's highly unlikely that he wasn't uh, abusing these kids? So we had, uh, th this issue was there. I, we don't, I don't make the decision, sisters make the decision. We talked to the bishop, and the bishop uh, made the call. Two or more allegations, you're going on the list. We're not going to put it out. If there's only one allegation on the priest, we'll note it, we'll record it, we'll keep it in the file, and if a subsequent allegation comes in, that priest will be moved onto the list. But for a deceased priest, if they have more than one allegation, they're on the list. If they don't, they're not. And that's still the rule that's being followed when Sister and I prepared this list. Um, there, um, by the way, um, I... Uh, sorry. Oh, by the way, there's also, you know, when, when the bishop made that decision, it was mainly just a practical decision on how to resolve these competing uh, concerns about not putting a priest on who didn't have a chance to defend himself and putting a person on with multiple allegations. But people should know that the priests that were on that list when we published that earlier this year, the diocese received calls from those, the families of those deceased priests, okay? And, and, and they were very upset. And the bishop asked me to speak with those families, and I spoke with three of them. And they were tough calls. You had the family saying, hey, wait a second. Where do you get off putting my uncle? I'm named after my uncle. I have the same first name and middle name. I'm named after him. And Bishop Head didn't, uh, didn't put him on any list. Metzel, what is going on in Buffalo? How do you do that? How can you do that to my deceased relative? He never had a chance to defend himself. And I would have conversations with these families and say, I'll tell you all that you can bear to hear. And I'd go through it. Uh, but the notion that you, who cares is a dead guy, you, you need to realize these are real live human beings who had uh, left footprints on this earth and have families that remember them. So um, we don't have any qualms about putting a person on with two, more, two or more allegations, but to put one on with just one allegation, we haven't done that. Okay. When the lists were uh, released, there's a lot of criticism of the diocese. Um, I mentioned the criticism of the family of the deceased priests, but there was also the criticism that we didn't incor uh, incorporate the order priests. Um, and, uh, you know, as I said before, I think it should have been obvious that we weren't including, from the description on the top, priests with one allegation or order priests. But the bishop heard those criticisms, okay? And so these new, and when, and when we're preparing the new list, he gave new instructions and said, order priests, if they, if they have two or more allegations on them, put it there, even though we didn't have a chance to investigate it, because, again, in the same thinking, it's highly unlikely there would be two and have it not be uh, legitimate. Um, and, or, and, and Sister did research looking on the internet and stuff, if we had one allegation here in Buffalo, but looking at news stories from around the country, we saw that this same particular order priest was accused elsewhere, then we took that as some sort of verification that this person belonged on the list. So those, uh, that resulted in the 16 names uh, going on the list. Okay. So now people are going to ask, how did you go from because Sister mentioned the number 176. How did you go from 42 to 176? Last time you gave us a list of 42, now you're talking about 146. The answer is we didn't. We went from 42 to 62. 
if you apply the, ca the, the categories and, and the um, determination factors that we applied to the first list, you have 42 diocesan priests, now we have 62. Why is it jumping up? Is it because we hid the other 20 before? No, it's because we got 190 claims in last year uh, against a lot of priests. And so it, it resulted in priests, uh, diocesan priests ending up on the list. Okay. Um, we're also adding the 16 order priests. So both the diocesan and the order priests put together is, uh, is 78. So 78 priests are going on the list. 176 are priests who have allegations on them. People are going to ask, what's the deal? Where are the, where are the 98 unnamed priests, right? That's going to be the question. And by the way, last time we didn't, uh, we never gave before, just like the bishop never gave a list of credibly accused priests or uh, substantiated claims against priests, the, the bishop until now has never given the instruction to give the number of priests against whom there have been allegations. So you're getting names on 78, but you're getting the number unnamed on the 176. So who are the unnamed almost 100 uh, priests that are on there? Um, the, the vast majority are deceased priests with one allegation, like I talked about the order priests with one allegation. Uh, and then uh, you see on Sister's List, there are um, a, a few priests who are in active ministry, who have an allegation against them, okay? Not a substantiated allegation. These allegations were reviewed and determined not to be substantiated. To give you an example, I'm not gonna name the priest because we're not giving you the name because we didn't determine it to be substantiated. But I wanna let you know of the sort of thing that is being presented and what's uh, being determined so that you can understand it's being done responsibly. We had a case of a woman who mailed an anonymous complaint to our victim assistance coordinator. She declined to identify herself or to provide any contact information. She wrote that she had a dinner conversation with her sister a couple of years ago, and her sister had recounted being attacked by a man in the, her high school 30 years earlier. The victim wouldn't identify her attacker, but the sister, the one who filed the form, drew the conclusion in her own mind that it was probably the priest against whom she was filing this complaint. The review board considered this. We had no one to talk to. We had an anonymous complaint from a woman about her sister, and it was deemed unsubstantiated. And that priest is in service. We have another case of a father who reported that his son had been abused 24 years earlier. And this sometimes happens. We have people say, my son or my friend or my sister or whoever was abused. And we try and reach out to the person who was abused. And that person doesn't corroborate or doesn't cooperate or doesn't talk to us. Um, you know, again, we, we, there's a claim out there. The father says, uh, you know, I think that this happened a number of years ago. The, 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 the son, who's now an adult, will not uh, cooperate or speak with us. The decision has to be made. That's not a substantiated claim. Another example, a priest received an anonymous letter that included that this, the claim that this priest had engaged in sexual improprieties years ago in the past. The priest, the good man, took that letter with no obligation to do so, and he notified the bishop right away. He said, I want you to know I got this anonymous complaint against me. I don't understand it. I don't know what this person's talking about. I, I, I've never done anything like this, and I don't know who it is or what it's all about. That priest is still an active priest, and I don't think anyone's gonna say we're hiding an abuser or a pedophile. 
the, 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 the bishop makes the determination with the recommendation of the review board what to do. And those decisions are, and the review board takes their responsibilities incredibly seriously. But when we look at something, I shouldn't say we, it's the review board, they look at something and they make a determination, they have to decide is it substantiated or not substantiated. And, and those are just some examples. Let me give you some other examples of the numbers in the gap uh, that, um, just to give you an idea, because some of them are alive. So we have the deceased priest with one allegation, the order priest. There are also this kind of a thing. We have a priest that was ordained in the early 70s, was in the ministry for only four years uh, before he was laicized. That means you, you can ask him, the priest, say, I, I no longer want to be a priest, I want to get married or whatever, and he was laicized. Uh, he became an Episcopal priest, uh, and he moved to another city across the country. When we received the notice of this claim, Bishop uh, Grosh contacted the relevant Episcopal diocese to report the claim. They had their attorney call me and was asking, what's this all about? I said, we have the claim right there. Since this is not, uh, this is a priest who was here with us for four years uh, in the 1970s, we're just turning it over to you because he's now a priest in your diocese. And she said, Should, has this been reported to the district attorney? I explained that we have a memorandum of understanding as to we report any claim that's prosecutable. And I said, but I tell you what, I'm gonna give you the number for the assistant district attorney who handles these cases, and you can call her yourself. And she did. The district attorney didn't do anything, but now it's in the hands of that diocese, the Episcopal diocese, to deal with that thing. Um, I don't know how, how many of these I should do. I'll do another one. Um, here's a man, because we have so many press people, this is a good one, I think. This is a man who was ordained a priest in Colorado. He went on leave in 1963 and never returned. He came to the Auburn area in the 1970s and founded a home for mentally ill veterans. Over the next 30 years, he would occasionally celebrate church, mass at a church in Auburn, even though he was not a priest of the Rochester Diocese. He apparently committed abuse there in 1973, and years later, the abused boys filed a claim in the Albany Diocese. They had done a similar thing to our IRCP years ago. The man stopped functioning as a priest at that point, because it's big news. This guy's not even a priest, and he's abusing kids. He's acting like a priest, pretending he's a priest, but he's not. So he stopped, and he moved to Buffalo. Mike Desmond, who was then at WNED, now at WBFO, uh, called the Diocese of Buffalo and said, hey, I don't know if you know about this guy, but he's in, in the Buffalo area. He never served as a priest here. Uh, I don't even know if he's still alive. If he is, he'd be 89 years old. But his name is not going on the list because we didn't investigate. It was abuse that didn't occur here, um, and it's not... Um, something we put on our list. So that gives you an idea of this gap of who are the people in between. Most of them are deceased priests uh, or order priests who have only one allegation and the others are kind of in a potpourri like I just uh, gave you. So I'm probably taking too much time, but let me, am I? Um, what's that? Oh, sorry, I didn't know. No, I got a little bit, can I keep going? Yes. Okay, sorry. Um, okay, people are saying, you know, when is this uh, crisis gonna be over? Why? How long are we gonna keep hearing about this? And I get it, but these stories are important and they need to be heard and they need, when the claims come forward, they need to be addressed. It's a life draining mess, but it's a mess that the church has to deal with. We have to respond to these victims, we have to provide the assistance where we can, and we need to do justice if that priest is still around. 
toward the end of the, the Civil War, uh, President Lincoln uh, talked about the Civil War as being sort of a, uh, a divine retribution for the evils that the slave owners in the South had done and the whipping that they had done of their slaves. What's that? Yes, yeah, sure, excuse me. So the, 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 when Lincoln was asked in the second inaugural, he said that um, the Civil War will last until every last drop of blood drawn with a lash shall be paid by another drawn with a sword. And I think if someone had asked him after the war, well, do you think it's over? Do you think you've now made up for slavery because you compensated with the war for what had happened? The South was punished. Does that make up for it? And the answer is, of course not. The, the, the effects of slavery uh, lingered for decades, and some would argue with good reason that they exist today. Uh, and the abuse crisis is going to be no different. It's going to be with us for a long time. Um, but I think what I've been trying to show is there's been a dramatic reduction since 2002, and the church has made a huge change in the way it treats these cases. Now, have there been mistakes in the church since 2002? Of course they have. Exhibit A are the two letters to uh, the, the apostleship in the sea for, Art, for, for Father Art Smith that everyone wishes the bishop had never sent. It was a mistake. He has apologized for it. There's going to be probably some other mistakes as we go forward. But if you look at the, the history of the church and the dramatic changes in programs, changes in the way we treat these cases, uh, you're going to see, and we'll continue to see, a dramatic drop in this abuse. So there is some good news in all of that. Uh, thank you. That is uh, Lawler Quinlan, who's been speaking at length here at the Diocesan News Conference. Again, here's Kathy Spangler. Next, I would Spangler. like to invite uh, Monsignor uh, Sal to come up and share some information with you about cases going to Rome. You heard from Lawler talking about the year 2002 and the Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People. What happened in 2002 was the United States bishops gathered in Dallas where they put together this Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People to be followed by all the dioceses in the United States whenever there was a substantiated allegation of child sexual abuse presented to a diocese. And this has been followed since that time, and what happens with this is once an allegation is substantiated and presented to the diocese, then it must be presented to the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith in Rome. With all of our cases that we are dealing with now, many of them are old cases, and so the bishop wrote to Rome asking the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith if they would still accept our old cases that um, we have in our files to be presented to them. They said yes. The reason it's presented to them is they then tell us how to proceed. And there's one of three ways that they would ask us to proceed, which they have in the past. We sent a request over to Rome how to proceed on a priest who was accused of child sexual abuse. And they referred it back to us to conduct a penal trial. That is now underway, being conducted by three different judges. They are not in the Diocese of Buffalo. They're all canon lawyers in different dioceses uh, around the country. And that is being done because they can be more objective than having somebody within the diocese to make a judgment about one of their priests. In order to protect objectivity, it's sent to another 
uh, judges outside the diocese. One of the other things that uh, the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith can tell us to do is to put the priest on a life of prayer and penance. That means he's removed from active ministry, cannot represent himself as a priest, cannot dress as a priest, cannot function publicly as a priest. Or a third option they have is dismissal from the clerical state, meaning the priest is completely removed from the priesthood. One of the things that came out of this Dallas Charter was if there is one offense that's substantiated, the person must be removed from ministry. That has been happening since 2002. In the Diocese of Buffalo, that had already been happening. Anyone accused of child sexual abuse was immediately removed from active ministry and put on a life of prayer and penance. So these are the, the things that the, every diocese in the United States must follow, and that is what we have been following since uh, it was published in 2002 uh, by the U.S. bishops that were gathered together in Dallas at the time to solve some of the issues that were confronting the church at that time. We continue with live coverage of the diocesan press conference. So this is like invite, uh, Kathy Spangler. To shed some light on investigations. Attorney Terry Connors now approaching the uh, podium. I asked to provide you with an update with respect to some matters that have been reported publicly so that you'd have first-hand knowledge with respect to what investigations there are currently pending in our diocese and in throughout the state of New York. So first of all, if we start in a chronological fashion, you should know that in late May of 2018, I received a call from a local prosecutor with the U.S. Attorney's Office. That's the Federal Prosecuting Agency. Essentially, the prosecutor told me that the U.S. Attorney would like to look at some paperwork, some documents, some files with respect to any allegations against priests that were after 1990. That's a significant difference because in the federal statutes, there's a position they take legally that 1990 is the cutoff with respect to the statute of limitations. So we asked to have a subpoena provided, which is standard practice. We got those materials and we provided them to the prosecutor. That information has been exchanged and an open extension has been granted so that they can come back and ask us if they desire any additional information with respect to that investigation. But that investigation is a potential criminal investigation. They're looking at conduct on the part of priests, is what I was told, to determine whether there's a federal jurisdictional nexus. Was there travel across state lines? Was there use of child pornography? Was there use of any digital operations such as Facebook or internet transmissions? Things of that nature to determine whether or not there is a basis to proceed with a federal prosecution. We have not heard anything since we've had our initial contact and complied with the subpoena, and so we're waiting to have an update with respect to that. The next matter took place in September of 2018. That is, as you know, a uh, statewide investigation, civil investigation, not criminal investigation, conducted by the Office of the Attorney General. The Attorney General, through their Charities Bureau, is asking for a number of documents that pertain to the use of funds that parishes, the diocese might use throughout the state of New York. Each and every diocese has been asked to respond. 
We've worked out a protocol because it involves a lot of electronically stored information so that we can provide it in different segments. And right now, that is a matter that's under negotiation with the Office of Attorney General. We meet and discuss regularly with them and with the other attorneys for the diocese in the state of New York so that production can be done in a logical and orderly fashion. Um, that has to do with allegations uh, that would be in violation of the religious corporations law, the estate powers and trust law, the civil laws that provide status to a corporation that's a religious, or the term is often known as an iliomacenary institution. They're looking to see if they violated the charter. And we've agreed to cooperate. Bishop Malone has instructed me to cooperate with that investigation. And I am cooperating with that investigation. In addition, there's a, uh, another litigation matter, which is primarily what I handle. Um, a civil case was filed by Matthew Golden against only the Diocese of Buffalo, and that was filed in New York State Supreme Court. It was filed with a theory, somewhat innovative theory, by an attorney named Jeff Anderson, who does a lot of this work. Essentially, the claim was that the exoneration of Father Ryder and returning him to active ministry was in some way a public nuisance. And that theory has been put into a summons and complaint and provided to the diocese. We've looked at it carefully, and we found that just last week, the same theory by the same lawyer was tried against the Rockville Center Diocese. And the appellate division of the second department, which is the guiding uh, department that covers those cases, it's the next highest department except for the Court of Appeals they ruled that that should be dismissed, that there's no foundation or basis for such a claim. We filed a similar motion modeled after that particular um, decision that was rendered by the Second Department. You may have read about um, a case that was filed, a comprehensive case that was filed in Manhattan, the Supreme Court of Manhattan. It's a case by uh, one plaintiff against all of the diocese in the state of New York. It has some of the similar claims to the litigation that I just spoke about, but it's expanded, the, expanded the, the reach a little bit. It's premised upon a claim of an abuse of one individual who I believe is a resident of Queens, but the abuse may have occurred in the Brooklyn Diocese. But in addition to filing the claim on behalf of that individual, they named every diocese in the state of New York. Now, that litigation is on a slower track. In fact, all of the dioceses have not yet even been served. So it is um, going to move a lot more slowly, and it will move in another court in another venue. But I thought I should let you know about that in case you weren't aware of that. The final piece of litigation that I'm working on deals with a request that comes out of the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. It's obtained some notoriety. It's a request by the prosecutors in that district, which encompasses Philadelphia as well, so they've had quite a bit of experience connection with those prosecutions from the grand jury investigation there, the state grand jury investigation. This is federal. They essentially sent a letter to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. The letter said, there's no need to do anything right now. There's no need to produce documents or even respond to this letter. But we ask you, as the leader of all the bishops and the other dioceses, to seek to communicate with each diocese nationwide to ask them to hold on to their documents. 
Now, for us, that was no big deal because we were already doing that as well, and nothing has come of it yet, but that request has been sent out by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. It's certainly been honored by our diocese, and I expect that we will continue to cooperate with these investigations and the other aspects of the litigation as it moves forward. That's the up-to-date. That's the uh, status of the cases and the investigations that I'm working on and that I'm handling. That's your first-hand report with respect to these matters. Kathy? So if you have uh, questions, sorry, I am back uh, here. So if you're a reporter and you have a question, we'd like you to ask one question at a time. And certainly if we have more time, we're happy to have you come back. So Charlie, I'm going to have you go first. First question from uh, Charlie Speck to WKBW-TV. Bishop, I want to go down. Uh, Bishop, I want to go down. Uh, Bishop, I want to go down a list of specific cases here and just to get you to explain why you handled them the way you did. Now, you have said here that um, you have never protected any priest accused of abusing a minor. Um, why did you leave Father Fabian Mariansky in ministry for more than five years despite an allegation of statutory rape when the victim was 16 years old? Father <coughs> Mariansky's case was handled by one of my predecessors uh, years before I came. We're talking about you now. I know that. Let me answer the question, please. Okay? And so Mariansky was sent off for evaluation and treatment, which at that time said he could be re returned to ministry. We would never do that now. We would never do that now since 2002. And so that's what happened. Then when I, when I arrived, uh, we discovered, actually fairly recently, a few months ago, we received a letter from the alleged victim who raised that question for the first time that I saw, and that's when I reopened the investigation. So I just wasn't aware of all this that had happened before I arrived. But her case was in the black binder that Mr. Connors prepared for you, so did you not read that binder when you became bishop? I read through it. A lot of the priests in there were already removed from ministry, as you know. Um, but in this particular case, I learned later, in this particular case, there was even a difference of opinion, if I'm not incorrect, Terry, about the age of the individual. Uh, do you want to comment on that quickly? This, this is a legal point, I think, that's important for you. Attorney Terry Connors okay, now coming up to assist the bishop as, as Charlie after, after you get this re remark, you will. So I think it's important to have some additional factual background about this particular case. It's 25 years ago. It came in in 1995. And obviously, from all the presentation you've heard today, things will be handled much differently. But at the time that it came in, we went back, I researched it uh, because of anticipating a question like this. And uh, we did prepare a binder and prepare a summary for the bishop. But what we learned back in 1995 is that the correspondence from her attorney said that essentially, Father Mariansky befriended his client in, um, 1990 is what one of the letters said. So we went and looked at it, and she was born in 1968. So it make her 21 or 22. So there was contradictory information. Several people reached out from the chancery to the, to the attorney to get some additional information. It remained contradictory. And what happened, I think, back in 1995, as best I can put together, is that it was treated as a case of adult abuse. And at that time, 
It was done, what was done throughout the country is that Father Fabian Mariansky was sent to be evaluated by no less than three to five institutions where he would be out of service for five years until finally he came back and after being evaluated, this was by Bishop Manzel, uh, was placed back into service because the evaluators told him that it was 100% safe to put him back into service. Those are the facts I was able to put together. Hopefully they're helpful. Which we would never do now. But you let him minister for five years. Why? He was out for five years. He was in a church for five... The whole time that you have been here as bishop, he has been in a church until the day the story was in the news. Why? Because that's when we discovered, just recently this spring, when I discovered that we had this new letter from the young woman who was making the complaint. I had heard already Terry's explanation of what had happened with a difference of opinion about the age at that time. Okay, um, Father Dennis Ryder is alleged to have molested not one, not two, but three minors. You, you, sus you suspended him, put him back uh, into ministry earlier this year before all of the victims were even interviewed. Why? I don't want to hear from Terry, I want well, to hear from you. Bishop. You're going to have to hear from my attorneys. I've been dealing with so many of these cases, Charlie, that the details in my weary brain seriously get mixed up. Can you comment on Lawler? No, no, I don't want to Who runs this diocese? Is it you or is it Terry and Lawler? It is I, okay. but I rely heavily upon those who advise me on the details of these okay. cases. I'm going to, I'm going to let, the, let the other journalists answer a question, but I... Sure, I don't want to leave that one unanswered, Mr. Speck. Um, the bishop doesn't make... He makes the final determination on any priest case, but he makes it after it's been reviewed by the review board. This case was investigated, and you say, why didn't you talk to all the victims? Our investigator went out and spoke with the victims that he could speak with, and he wrote letters to the attorney for the other victim, and that attorney ignored letter after letter after letter, and like the press often does, as soon as you make the decision, he's like, gotcha, why didn't you talk to me first? We tried to talk to that person again and again. And when he finally did that, Mr. Specht, mm -hmm. we did go out and interview that person. That thing was fully vetted. All the information was obtained. There were a number, I don't wanna, you know what, I don't wanna get into the, the claims except to say that they were presented to the review board. And I'm gonna protect the confidentiality, but it was all considered and the review board recommended the bishop unanimously that Father Ryder be returned to ministry. And it was fairly done. I, I, that's, that's the chart of working. Now, sometimes they, as you know, two priests were within a month of that uh, removed from ministry. So the review board. I just want to say your investigator was so incompetent, he was asking me for phone numbers. So. Oh, that's very, very he, he, he okay. had a number of years prosecuting these cases the Erie County District Attorney's Office. That's correct. Okay. okay. I just want, I'm going to let the other journalists answer something, but Bishop, I just want to ask you you've talked to every news organization in this room except ours. Many of our viewers feel like you're hiding from the tough questions. Are you afraid to do an interview with us? I'm not afraid to, but I watch the approach that Channel 7 takes and it would make anyone wary, I think. But I'm certainly not entirely close to it. Several of you have referenced that charter focuses on minors, it doesn't address seminarians or adults ages 18 and older. Right. Are we looking at this 
through the wrong lens? I mean, does that charter go far enough and do we need to set a different bar? That's, a, that's an excellent question and the answer is the charter does not go far enough. It was established in response to the terrible crisis in Boston um, to deal with in an effective way with allegations by, of clerical abuse of minors. And I do believe the evidence shows it's very effective. What we need now is some kind of similar protocol that would take more seriously the ways we ought to handle uh, allegations of misconduct by a priest with an adult. This is where I know I made some missteps. Uh, traditionally, when a priest has been accused of misconduct with an adult, we have tried to work with that priest quietly. You'd call it a cover-up, we call it confidentially, so as not to have a big explosion in the parish. Father Yetter, for example, is a very effective and, and highly uh, esteemed pastor by many people in Swarmville. So sometimes you can try to work with the priest, help him see uh, the errors of his ways, send them for evaluation, but it's the wrong way. I, I, would I do it that way again? No. But that's because we need a protocol, and I have established a committee of entirely lay women and lay men who are going to be working on creating a protocol for us. It's also possible that the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops may uh, work on something like that, too. I'm, I'm going to bring that up personally. That's a very, very important question. And then really quickly, Bishop, I'd like to know if there's a timeline for victims with the Independent Reconciliation and Compensation Program. Have any settlements been made? Are victims aware of impending settlements? Because several of them have said they've heard very little from the diocese. Yeah, it's, well, they, don't, they won't hear from us. They'll hear from the, see, we, the program is run by, as you know, by two former judges. And uh, the, they're the administrators of the program. And it's, it's entirely independent of us. So we can't even, I can't even give them a call and say, could you hurry this up? Uh, but it, it is, I understand how frustrating it is for the victims, but I know they're working hard on it, studying all the claims and, and inviting. The people have the right to go in too, not just to send in their claim, but to go in and meet uh, with one of, the, one of both of these judges. Is there a reason the Buffalo Diocese chose those two former judges as opposed to the administrators used for that fund that every other diocese in New York State uses? Well, we, we thought it would be good to use two judges who, are, who, are, who know Western New York, who are known here and esteemed by the people, and also the ones that were being used by the other dioceses, I think were pretty loaded with, with work to do. So that's why we had confidence in the two, and we still do, in the, in the two judges we uh, were using. Hello, Bishop Malone. Uh, Mark Ashgarian from Spectrum News. And I'm sorry. Uh, for the record, I would just like to add that our station was not uh, was also not given access to a one-on-one -on -one sit down with you um, as of yet. My question is: Would you have been releasing this information if it hadn't been reported locally and uh, nationally? Were on TV? Would this information be coming out? Which which information specifically? The information about the the list of the priests and all the allegations of abuse. Oh, absolutely. Once I made the decision back in, when do we issue the thing? February to put out, in March rather, March 1st, to put out those names. We had been pondering that uh, for a while because there were lots of pros and cons. There were, there were people in the diocese who didn't think it was a good thing that it would possibly even re-victimize some of the victims to hear about it again. But I think it's more important that victims can see the name publicly put forth of the person who abused them, so that if they haven't come forth, that can empower them then to take that step. My follow-up question to this is, does this 
crisis perhaps spark a new way of thinking in the Catholic Church? Should priests be allowed to marry? Should women be, uh, you know, priests as well? It may not solve the problem, but wouldn't it curb it just a bit? I don't know whether you could, whether you could claim that it would curb it at all. I mean, the, the question of whether priests can marry is a, kind of an open question in the church. I mean, it's a long-established tradition that priests are celibate in the Latin church, the Western church. If the Pope decided to, to change that, he could. Uh, the ordination of women is a matter of, of, of doctrine that I, I don't think can be changed. But uh, I'm not sure either of those would, would affect the sexual abuse challenge because the numbers show that an awful lot of abusers are married men, sadly. Bishop Mike Baggerman with WBEN Radio. On Friday, you were on our radio station. You said you were not aware of any allegations against current priests. About 24 hours later, uh, two priests, or rather two clergymen, were uh, placed on leave, Father Ron Sajak and Monsignor uh, Fred Lysing. Did you know about the accusations when you made that comment? And additionally, are there any priests or clergy that you know of right now? That have been incredibly I'll answer your second part first, no there are not, and I said honestly what I said on your radio station the other day. Uh, Father Lysing, for example, did not have a legal claim against him. We discovered a reference to the accusation uh, in while we were working through another case, and then that was mentioned in there, not as a claim but as a fact, so we decided that while we wouldn't put him on administrative leave originally, uh, when all of this was coming up again, it would be a good idea to take a new look at that. And there's a similar story, <clears throat> excuse me, for Father, uh, for Father, for Father Ron Sajak. He uh, was not a priest at the time of the abuse. It started in his teens. And so it, the review board studied that one and ruled it out as abuse of a minor. But I thought that it would be a good thing to take a new look at it. You know, that's, it, this is part of my commitment to do the work in a stronger, more transparent way. As a follow-up to what you had just said, even if there's an accusation against them when they were teenagers, doesn't that disqualify them from becoming a member of the clergy? Well, I, I don't know the details at the time. I mean, that was a while, long ago before I came. I don't know whether or not, uh, I mean, sometimes, you know, uh, teenagers will get involved in some uh, experimental stuff. We've known that for years, and I don't know the, the, the file, the admissions file. Certainly, if we knew that a priest had been involved in a, or a candidate for the priesthood had been involved with a minor in an inappropriate way, he would never, never be allowed into the seminary. Not a chance. One last question. Uh, regarding this new release of priests, you had mentioned that you feel like you didn't handle it well as it pertains to allegations against, or allegations of abuse against adults. You have no list here of priests accused of abusing adults. Can you explain why? Well, we're, we're, as I say, this, this list, as you know, at this point is a work in progress. And so we're certainly considering um, other categories. For example, there are a tiny handful of deacons, okay, and a few uh, women religious sisters. And we, we're, we're, that's on our agenda. But we know that the most important and pressing concern I think of most people, including our media friends, is, is the names of the priests. That's why we wanted to get these out. 
Bishop Steve Brown from Channel 2. A uh, question about the Children's uh, Child Victims Act, which has been circulating in Albany for a number of years. Uh, for the first time, the Conference of Catholic Bishops signaled that it could be open to a look-back provision in a piece of legislation like this. Um, you said yesterday to Mary Alice that bankruptcy was not out of the question for the diocese. Well, we, we, we're hoping not. And my, my people who are responsible for the financial resources tell me that we think it's unlikely because we have hope, hopefully the resources uh, to uh, be able to handle those claims. But at this point, we don't have an absolute knowledge of what the total amount will be because that's still under consideration by, by those administrators. But wouldn't the Child Victims Act with a look back provision mean more lawsuits against the diocese, mean more money that you'd have to spend on this issue? Well, it possibly could. Doesn't that mean bankruptcy is more likely if this happens? I, I, I wouldn't be able to predict it because we, we don't know, you know uh, how many people will be satisfied with the claims that are coming now. And the next question probably is, did we put the child victim, did we put in the IRCP program uh, to try to get ahead of the Child Victims Act? And the answer is no, we did that after a lot of discussion the last two years with all the New York bishops. Uh, we said we have to show honestly uh, repentance and a commitment to justice and healing for the, for the, uh, for the victims. And we, the bishops among ourselves on a telephone call said that may mean the selling of our bishops' residences and other things like that, and we all agreed we had to do it. That, that would mean that it would be a really large coincidence that I think it's six different dioceses over the course of the last three years all decided to do this all at once when the first one, Albany, did it back in 2002. Yeah. So this is just a coincidence? Well, it, it happened. It, it, I wouldn't say it's a coincidence, but I would say that some of the downstate bishops uh, I don't want to name which ones, but they became very passionate about a spiritual, I remember the phone call, a spiritual responsibility that we bishops had to reach out in an effective way beyond simply words to, uh, to victims. Thank you. You're welcome. Jay Tokaz, Buffalo News. Um, I'd first like to just ask uh, for a clarification on the 191 claims. Are those to the IRCP program, or are those just? These are the people who know those numbers. They live with them every day. Excuse me. Thanks, Jay. Sorry. Um, just to clarify, <clears throat> and I got to clarify another thing, but I'll do yours first. The 191. The, the diocese is obligated to do this audit every year, and up until this year, it's all been claims that came in through. Jackie Joy or previous victim assistance coordinators. And this year, some people bypassed that. They said, I'm not interested in talking to counseling. I don't want to hear. I'm just filing, filing my claim against you and serving it. So what we tried to do is say, okay, who did both and who did just one? And, and to the best we could, get a number that, because those, even though they didn't come in as a complaint, I think that's a new allegation of child abuse. If, we, if we're hearing about it for the first time, even though it's old, it's a new claim if we've never heard from this person before. So it is both the claims that came in through Jackie and a subset of the IRCP claims that were coming to us for the first time. We were trying to catch everything that is a, a, a first time reporter this year. Does that answer the question? Do you have a separate There is a separate number. I don't know it. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, we had a deadline of June 1st for the RCP claims, and they continued to come in. Um, and, and, you know, people are just filing the claim. So um, there is a number, Jay, I just don't know it. But I, I want to correct something just uh, that the bishop said about Father Sajak. Um, the review board did consider the decision not to publicly announce uh, Father Sajak. We have not yet, the review board has not yet considered the claim because it's still being investigated, uh, and I don't want to get into that anymore. But so the decision was that it w this wasn't a claim against this man when he was a priest. And someone asked, well, geez, if, if you're as a teenager and teenagers do something together, should that disqualify them from being a priest? And I won't be making the determination. that will be the review board's determination. But if we get to a point, and I understand that transparency is important, and I understand that people want to look into the past of their priests, but St. Augustine, if you read his confessions, lived a life of debauchery before he became a priest. And he became a great priest and a great bishop and one of the greatest saints in the history of our church. And if we are turning away people because of a concern for something else, boy, that's not what should be happening. But that, that claim is going to be investigated uh, and presented to the review board and a determination will be made in the future on that one. So let me respond just briefly to Steve Brown's question about uh, the Child Victims Act. It's attorney Terry Connors Ironically, now. Uh, if the Child Victims Act were to pass, that would mean a greater likelihood that there would be insurance coverage that would then kick in that doesn't kick in for the Independent Reconciliation and Compensation Bureau. Well, I can't predict with any certainty, but there is a likelihood that if that were to pass, it would make it less likely, not more likely, that bankruptcy would be in the future because you would have the possibility of insurance companies stepping up to, to meet their obligations for those cases because they now would become a case or a controversy. They'd now be an occurrence that would be a covered matter. So I just want to clarify that. Uh, just a second question. Just uh, trying to get a, a sense of, you probably heard from the priests this afternoon before, prior to coming here, um, just the sense of uh, the level of uh, attendance at mass, um, donations to the church, all in, in uh, I mean, in some cases, I'm hearing, you know, free fall. Um, can you give me a sense of that? Well, my colleagues here with me can, can correct me if I didn't get it right. They, they had a whole range of questions and concerns, and one or two of them did mention um, that the, uh, the collection had gone down um, or people were holding back on uh, significant contributions. But I, I didn't hear a whole lot of that. There was a lot of concern among them about, um, and I, the, the meeting I had with them I consider confidential, but I can say th this won't surprise you. There was a lot of concern among them for how uh, accused priests are treated and that it can take a long time sometimes, longer than we'd like for those cases to be resolved and things like that. So. It was, a, it was a good meeting. That's why it went too long and held you guys up. One of those accused priests is, is really um, sort of the, what, who kicked this off, and it's uh, Father Norb Orselitz. Um, we've inquired with him later on um, if the diocese had been in contact with him. Uh, obviously, he claimed, or he, he said, he acknowledged abusing probably dozens yeah. of boys. Um, 
Orslitz told me, told another person at the news that the only inquiry from the diocese was simply to recommend that, they, that he hire a lawyer. It seems if you were trying to get to the bottom of his abuses, you would be going to him and asking him, who are these people that you abused, and then reaching out to them? Why has that not been Well, his, uh, his case, a good question, his case is one of several that are now in preparation to be sent to the Vatican for their adjudication. There are, one has already gone over there, that's Father Franzak. Um, I signed off on three others today. It's a very complicated canonical process to prepare the documentation. It really has to be perfect in, in the information provided so that when it gets to the Vatican, they don't have to say there's something missing here, send it back to us. And, on these things, as in many other things, the Vatican moves kind of slowly. So the Orsolitz case is in preparation to go, go there, and the information will be gathered for that purpose. But in terms of finding out who those victims are, we, you know, we maybe know five or six, uh, but if he's saying probably dozens, I would take him at his word. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, there's no effort to sort of figure out who those people are and maybe help them. You make a good point. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's the case. I'm not doubting your word, but uh, I certainly will check, check into it. If it hasn't been done, it certainly will be. Some have filed claims. Huh? Some have Yeah, some, some of them have filed claims, so we, we do know who some of the names are. Thank you. Thank you. How is everybody for time who's uh, there? Because I'm getting tight. Okay, so uh, Charlie, or if you can each keep it to one more question, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Can I have some space here? Yes, what would you like me to do? Just back up a little bit, please. Thanks. Okay. Bishop Malone, I'd like to, to ask you something. Um, throughout your news conference, we've been hearing in real time from a lot of the victims here, and uh, I just want to read you something that one of the victims has to say, and I'd like you to just respond to it. Bishop Malone clearly has no idea what the heck is going on in his own diocese. You can let him know I am still waiting for his personal phone call or Bishop Groves' personal phone call or counseling offered by the diocese. I can tell you for sure. First of all, I hope that person will call tomorrow and identify him or herself and we'll be able to respond. Whenever we get a call or a letter from a victim, even before we look in to see whether it's valid and substanti substantiated or, or passes that uh, neither false nor frivolous low bar, immediately counseling is provided, is offered to that person. So I don't know what happened with that, but I apologize to that victim if, if somehow it got caught up in the bureaucracy. We, as, as we mentioned before, and we've got the numbers, there was such a flood of claims that came in. Some, it might have fallen through the cracks, which is not an excuse, just a, a reason. Bishop Gross, do you want to comment on that? Could you handle those? Bishop handles most of those. All right, as soon as the claimant or the alleged victim does go to Jackie Joy, Jackie, after, of course, speaking with the individual, getting the information on the case, forwards a copy of that to me, legal counsel. As soon as I get that information, I have to go into the archives to do the research relative to that particular priest, whether the priest is living or deceased. And as I review the actual case so I'm acquainted with it, I immediately call that individual. 
As soon as I speak to the individual, number one, I validate their case and thank them for coming forward because in some cases, these individuals have spent perhaps years keeping this information from anybody, so thank them. And sometimes, even they'll say to me, I feel terrible because I've held this for 30 years and I feel terrible because maybe others were abused. No, you came forward now, that's number one. Number two, on behalf of Bishop Malone, myself, the diocese, we extend the apology to you for this inappropriate behavior of this priest. Number three, as you probably spoke with Jackie Joyce, she's offered you the opportunity for counseling. Again, I offer that again because sometimes they may say no to Jackie, but again, they'll come to me and say, let me consider it. And then if there's any other pastoral care that I can offer, fine. So, I mean, we do return those calls immediately. I, and again, if the person has not received that call, perhaps the person didn't go through the proper channels or whatever it might be. That, that's news to me. Could I? Thank you. Charlie and others, could I add just a, a footnote too on that, on that topic? I, I don't know where I saw or read this uh, recently, but uh, in the past week or two, there was some comment that I lack empathy for victims. Now, no one who would say that has ever sat with me in a private setting where I have met with victims. I've met with dozens of victims in Boston and in Maine and here. And uh, often those, uh, those are tearful sessions. Um, any victim who was asked to sit down with me or Bishop Grosh always gets given that opportunity. So uh, you'd have to be able to sit with me and watch, which will never happen because it's a very confidential setting, uh, to see that I, I, I don't think I lack empathy. Sometimes it's, it's a heartbreaking, always it's heartbreaking, so anyway. So you, you've never avoided meeting with victims? I don't avoid meeting with victims at all, no. I want them to call, I, I don't want to be ambushed, either by you people or a victim, but I met a victim not long ago. He said something about, you didn't take my phone call. I said, I, I don't know about that, but I don't want a phone call, I want to make an appointment. I want you to come in and sit down. And right now I'll say, in front of all of you media, media folks here, that if there are victims who wish to come and sit down with me, I'm very open to that. But I'd rather do that face-to-face -face than with a phone call, if, if it's possible. I think we have time, Kathy, for one more. Bishop Malone, Jen Schatz from News yes, Oregon. Um, you've mentioned that there's now new protocols put in place to handle allegations of abuse of adults by clergy. Uh, but what about abuse at the hands of diocesan employees, choir directors, diocesan teachers? Oh, yeah. Is removing them from the workplace enough, and why are their names not released, as they would be in a criminal justice well, setting? Well, and you, I think if I heard you correctly, uh, you said that a protocol for handling adult allegations was in place. It's not in place. That's, that's the problem. And that's what my new task force, late task force, is going to be developing. But I, it needs, absolutely, it needs to cover not only clerics, but uh, anybody who's in church uh, employ. Can you tell us about some of the progress that that task force has made? I know it was announced several months ago. Well, they've just, they've just organized themselves to get together to begin to, to move forward on it. When you see, did you, have you seen the names of those members yet? Uh, of the task, of the task force? force? Yeah. Yes. Okay. And as you can see, many of them are very busy, committed professionals. So to get them all together uh, to, to launch this thing, but they, they're very, very passionate about getting started. It was just getting them all together at one time in one place, but it's about to happen. And they, they know how important this is to me because even if the US bishops decide to put together such a protocol, who knows how long that could take? And I'm sure we can do it effectively in less time. And we, do, we already do have a code of conduct that applies to everybody. Uh, 
priests and uh, lay people alike uh, to build off of, but it's more principles than procedures and protocols. And that's, so do, that's you, what I want. do you plan, Bishop, on ever releasing the names of diocesan teachers or choir directors who have been accused of abuse? Well, we're thinking all of that through now. As I said, I'm not opposed to any of that. Uh, we wanted at this point to really get our act together on all these different categories of priests, which we've given you today. And this, I'm sure, is not the end of the list either with, uh, with the diocesan priests. As, as if more, more come in and they go through the process, uh, they'll be on the list. Okay? Thank you. We do have one more uh, question, so a final question. Thank you. Bishop Malone, Michael Morosiak, WBFO Radio. Of all the priests who have been removed uh, from service, were any of those cases referred to law enforcement? I'm pretty sure they were, huh? Yeah, some, some were. Can you give a percentage? Well, I, I, can, I don't, can't give a percentage. Can you talk about the memorandum? Sure. sure. There, Mike, there's a memorandum of understanding that is in place, um, and it's been in place since, I think, 2003. <clears throat> what happened is I was contacted at that time by Frank Clark, who was the district attorney, and said that he wanted to meet with me to work out a protocol to report cases to the district attorney's office. Because, for better or for worse, priests are not mandated reporters. Maybe that should be changed. I said, sure. I went over and met with him and the eight district attorneys for all the counties. We formulated a memorandum of understanding that essentially requires reporting cases that are still timely, that could still be prosecuted. Um, that was their idea and their language because in large measure they didn't want a flood of cases where the hopes of the victims would be elevated when nothing could be done. So in addition, when John Flynn became the district attorney, I called him up and said, do you want to change it, make amendments? He did. He called me back and he said, Terry, there's been a change to the statute of limitations, which I didn't know. He said, let me get back to you. I'll draft something, run it by the eight district attorneys for each county, and you see if it's acceptable to you. That was done several months ago. Okay, everyone, thank you for coming today. Uh, if you need more clarification and information, please contact our office. Um, this is our best effort today. We view this as an ongoing matter, so uh, we look forward to speaking with you again, and I'd like to ask Bishop Malone to please close us in prayer. Thank you. Gracious God, we ask your blessing upon all gathered here today, our friends in the media and my own staff. And Lord, help me and help all of us in all of our concerns and priorities always to keep victims and their healing and justice first. Help us, Lord, to repair and rebuild our church. All of this we ask in your holy name. Amen. Thank you all. Thank you. And there you have it. That is Bishop uh, Richard Malone ending a news conference here at uh, Infant of Prague here in... Um, stand by just a moment here. Right. Some additional comments. There were two who spoke up. And you asked for your resignation? Yes. Yeah. I told them no. I intend to, to the best of my ability, uh, to continue to lead the diocese through it. And when, if they maybe also told you at the end of my remarks when I thanked them for coming, there was a huge applause. So they're in different places on it. But it was only, it was only two, though, that, uh, that spoke out. And others seemed to be very affirming. I, I simply asked them for a new trust in me that working together with them uh, we could move the church beyond this terrible situation. So, 
Okay. All right, a final question uh, was shouted uh, from the gallery of reporters here asking uh, about the meeting that he had had prior to this press conference with the diocesan priests, and it indicated that uh, he did receive some support there from uh, the priests. So a very lengthy news conference, guys, here as uh, Bishop Malone uh, exits the room along with the attorneys that were present today and other uh, clerical staff in the Diocese of Buffalo. A lot has been said here, a lot has been asked, and uh, I'm sure an awful lot of reaction to be had uh, to what the Bishop had to say today. Well, we'll certainly take uh, telephone calls, Tim, at 803-0930, star 930, 1-800-616-WBEN. We're going to be going to uh, Mr. Puckett, I believe, for a news update as well as get an update on traffic and stuff. Tim, uh, obviously radio and sound is one element of communication, but you were actually in the room uh, while all of this was taking place. Was the atmosphere one of rancor and contentiousness, or uh, how would you define it? How would you describe it? I, I think the, there was a little bit of frustration uh, during the actual opening presentation where the lawyers took an awful long time to explain things, but obviously they felt they had a captive audience, and they did, uh, and wanted to get their points across, their legal points um, across to the media prior to uh, being bombarded with questions. Mm. I would say the mood definitely shifted to, uh, I wouldn't say rancorous, but tense for sure uh, during the period uh, when it did go to questions and answers, and uh, you know, a, a great deal of frustration on the part of Charlie Specht from WKBW-TV, who originally reported all of this uh, and uh, was finally able to uh, get some questions in of uh, Bishop Malone. He had not been able to uh, do so until today. Well, if Charlie wants to come on Bowerly and Bellevue, I suppose we could welcome him. Uh, Tim, thank you very much for your uh, work down there, and I'm sure we'll hear more from you during the news. All right, Tom. Tim Wenger, uh, joining us from Infant of Prague and Chictawaga on News Radio 930 WBEN. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.